look with me, please, to one verse in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 8. Nehemiah 8, 8. And they read from the law or the Torah of God, translating or explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. There is only one verse in the entirety of Scripture. Only one verse in the entirety of Scripture. Something God only saw need to put one time, one place in his word. There's only one verse, this one, that speaks to the issue of translations. Only verse. God said it only once. He didn't see a need to say it more than once. Now we have people called Rucklinites, King James only people, and the extreme ones will actually put the 1611 edition of the King James Bible, which is a translation of a translation. They'll give that priority over the original autographs in the original languages. In fact, Peter Ruckman himself said, additions to the 1611 King James Bible are further revelation, which is a hell-damning sin, according to the last thing Jesus said in Revelation 22. There's only one verse that speaks to the issue. Now, being able to expound the scriptures from the original Greek and Hebrew, that's a good thing. But it doesn't guarantee accuracy. The rabbis can read Hebrew perfectly, and they don't even know that Jesus is the Messiah. We can get somebody reading the scripture in Swahili, can see he's the Messiah. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, all of the academic and linguistic tools are useless. But with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God tells us the priority is always on the original meaning of the original languages. The Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity, and they left something in Babylon, their mother tongue. They spoke Chaldee, they spoke Aramaic, they didn't speak Hebrew anymore, and they didn't understand the scriptures. The Levites had to explain the original meaning of the original scriptures. The priority is always on the original languages. Let no one tell you differently. Now let's go further. Brother Steve read Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm in English because of its prose, because of its poetic language, its imagery. I've seen a picture, and many of you, or probably most of you have, of Jesus with a long red frock against the background of rolling green hills, carrying a little lamb with a shepherd's crook in one hand and a little lamb in the other, surrounded by sheep. Now, I guess that does indicate something about his nature as shepherd, in that he carries the lambs and shepherds the sheep. But it's completely alien to the Sitzimleben, to the cultural context of Psalm 23. That's not what it's like in Israel. It is either desert <laughs> or it is rocky hills and following the seasonal weather patterns. To this day, the Bedouin shepherds will lead the sheep from wadi to wadi, from oasis to oasis, looking for water in what can be a treacherously hot climate, especially for sheep covered with wool secreting lanolin when you have 120 degrees dry heat. It's nothing like that picture. It's like Leonardo da Vinci's fresco, The Last Supper in, in Milan. Well, it's a very nice picture, but there wouldn't have been any table and chairs at a Paschal Seder in the time of Jesus. They would have reclined on cushions on the ground around a three-sided table called the triclinium, that's for sure. It's just impression of Renaissance art. We have to understand in our mind's eye what Psalm 23 is actually describing. 
The most famous oasis, undoubtedly in Israel, is where King David hid from Saul, Ein Gedi. Barren, barren wilderness, not far from Masada, not far from Sodom, along the Dead Sea. But even from the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea, you can see a green stripe going up the hill. It stands out starkly simply because it's the only green to be seen. You've got a wadi. A wadi is a dried up creek bed that during the rainy seasons becomes a flash flood zone. It can wash away a sheep and kill it easily, smashing it into rocks. About 10 years ago, two Israeli soldiers were actually killed in a wadi in the desert, washed away in a wadi and, and smashed up into a boulder and killed. Uh, it's very different than what we would get from Psalm 23. Okay. As you continue up on Gedi, past the wadi, you get to calm pools way up on top where the caves are where, where David hid from King Saul. And there's a cascade. And there's beautiful, beautiful fauna and flowers and gazelles grazing and butterflies and birds. And it's, it's really, really nice. But it's rather treacherous getting up there. This is the most famous oasis in Israel, but there are others. So this is the background of Psalm 23. You all can recite it by heart, probably, from the King James Bible, and Steve just read it. Now I'll tell you what it really says, and instead of bringing a computer like I did yesterday to have the Greek, I just printed off the Hebrew. <laughs> Make my life easier. Mizmorle David. Yehawarro'i <laughs> Beshemen, Roshi kos irabaya, Echto vehesed yardifuni, Kolye mehayai, Beshavti, Bebet yehoa, Le orech yamim. Let's go verse by verse, word by word, what Psalm 23 really means. First of all, Mizmor le David, a psalm of David. Not all psalms are psalms of David. And remember, in the Hebrew canon, they are not poetry simply, they are songs. The Hebrew term for a song and a poem is the same word, shir, shir. Shir shirim, the song of songs, like the song of Solomon. Poem and song is the same term. They were written for worship purposes. Well, Mizmor le David. David is the Old Testament shadow of Jesus as shepherd. The Hebrew term for shepherd and pastor is the same word. Ro'e, the one who sees over. Ro'e, ro'e. In Greek, it's the same. The term, the main term is episcopal. Epi, around, <laughs> scopo, like a microscope, telescope, periscope. The one who looks over. There's also another Greek word, poeon, but the main one is episcopal. You get the word episcopalian from it. Episcopal. Episcopal. Okay. Episcopal. But roi in Hebrew. Mizmor le David. When you read Kings and Chronicles, 
Every king was compared to David. He was God's plumb line. He was God's standard. In the Old Testament, how good a king was, was how much like David he was. We read in Ezekiel 34, the kings of Israel and Judah were to be shepherds, oroim. They were the shepherds of the people. David is the Old Testament type shadow of Jesus as good shepherd and as king. How good a king, how good a shepherd the kings of Hezekiah, the Josiah, you'll see in Kings and Chronicles. He, he, he did not walk after the Lord his God with all his heart as his father David had done, you know, or he did. They're all compared to David. Why? Because he's the type of Christ as the good shepherd. In other words, how good a pastor a pastor is, is how much like Jesus he is. You understand? Jesus, the son of David, David being his Old Testament picture. All the shepherds of Israel are compared to David because all the shepherds of the body of Christ are compared to the son of David, the good shepherd. With this in view, let's look at the epistle of Peter, please. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Alan in Greek, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Notice he's not decreeing anything. He's not issuing a papal encyclical. And he's not claiming any primacy. He just says, I'm another elder. He's not setting himself over the others. Again, this is one of the reasons the Roman Catholic Church put the scriptures on the index of banned books for centuries. It does not support the doctrine of the papacy. Peter never claimed to be any kind of a pope. In fact, the word pope comes from papa, father, or papias in Greek, or padre in Latin. And Jesus said as a religious title, call no man your father. <laughs> well, let's look. The fellow elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of the Messiah, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Those who are not witnesses in our lives, martyrios in Greek, to the sufferings of Christ, to the crucified life, are not going to be partakers of the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Get the word episcopo. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain but with eagerness. Now that word, sordid gain, is interesting. Escro kerdos. Translated, perhaps most accurately, filthy lucre. Do it voluntarily. If somebody is not willing to be a tent maker, if somebody is not willing to have a secular job, and voluntarily pastor a congregation, he should not be a pastor. Now, if a church grows to the size, it needs a full-time pastor or pastors. If a ministry grows to the point, by God's blessing, it requires full-time people, perfectly scriptural. But be careful of those who go into the ministry for a job, a career, even a vocation. It's not that. 
if they're not willing to do it without salary, they shouldn't be doing it at all. Not that it's wrong to be salaried when God so leads and provides and the need emerges. But Peter continued fishing initially, didn't he? I began in the ministry in Israel. Well, actually, I did evangelism on the streets of New York before that. But I began in the ministry in Israel. And I filled prescriptions five and a half days a week because it's the only thing I knew how to do. <laughs> I had a family. I had to earn a living. So I filled prescriptions. That's what I studied when I was a kid. It's the only thing I could do. I did it. It was 5% medicine and pharmacology and 95% filling out forms and telling old ladies in Yiddish who didn't speak Hebrew how many to take. <laughs> I hated it! But I did evangelism in addition, and I co-led a congregation in Galilee in addition. Well, that's what we did. When the ministry grows and there's a need to go full-time, praise God. But if somebody is not willing to do it on an unsalaried basis, there's an element of sordid gain. They're looking for a job. The first thing they want to know about is the accounts, the money, the offerings, the size. They look at it the way the world does. They're not looking at a flock. They're looking at a business opportunity. Be careful of people like now, on the other hand, those who work hard at preaching and teaching the Word of God, Paul says, count worthy of double honorarium, money, not honor, honorarium, money. Um, it's not easy. It looks easy. But uh, <coughs> Why should you go to work in the factory or the office or the farm or the hospital or wherever you work, pay your own taxes, support your own family, and come and salary somebody to be full-time in ministry who's feeding you junk food week after week. Why would you eat in Burger King and pay for filet mignon, you know? <laughs> pay for Chateaubriand. Pay, pay for gourmet food when you're eating junk food. Well, I've warned about this many times. You see what these guys do. They come up week after week and they say something like this. Now, the shepherd has two tasks, to protect the sheep and to feed them. Those are the main two tasks, to protect and to feed. These guys come up week after week. I'm just going to share what's on my heart. What he really means is, I don't have anything in my brain. <laughs> Study to show yourself approved. Those who work hard... <laughs> if they don't study, they can't feed. God does not approve of such people. Neither should we. And we should certainly not approve of them with our checkbooks and our tithes and our offerings. Let them go out and get an honest job. This is tough. Let's continue looking what Peter says. Verse 3, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Leadership is by example. 
It's not enough to say what's wrong. You have to say what's right. But it's not enough to say what's right. You have to show people what's right. When error began overtaking the church, I was one of those people who began speaking up and saying this stuff is wrong and that guys like Dave Hunt were right. And I was ostracized, and I'm still ostracized. Before I knew Jesus, I used to get thrown out of rock concerts, bordellos, nightclubs, things like that. After coming to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I get thrown out of churches. <laughs> Boy, the thing. Uh, I just get back from the Philippines. We take care of impoverished kids in the Philippines and Africa. Leadership is by example. It's not enough to say what's wrong. You've got to say what's right, but not just with your words, with your deeds. That's why we put, you know, people, a lot of people know me because I'll speak out on issues. I wish they'd go to our website and see what our missionaries are doing in Asia and Africa. I wish they'd see our work with the underground church. In, in countries where the church is persecuted, and, and, and our emphasis on evangelism, on reaching Jews and Muslims and Catholics and more. It's not enough to say what's wrong. You have to say what's right. But also say it not just with words. It's what you do. Unless you do that, you don't have the right to say what's wrong. <laughs> you have to earn the right to say what's wrong by showing people what's right by what you do. Now, this is a struggle. Not lording it over. God hates heavy shepherding. Ezekiel 34. God hates heavy shepherding. We don't know who or what they were. There's different theories, but we know what the word means. Nicolaitans, if you don't know. Nicolaity, suppression of the people. A clergy class. Who are you to question us? They become a Christian Sanhedrin, the very thing that Jesus went against. The leaders should be the servants. That doesn't mean you don't respect their position and recognize God's gifting and calling, but it does mean nobody, nobody is above question if they deviate from Scripture. Nobody's above question if they deviate from Scripture. Be careful of people who only refute error. In Northern Ireland, I live in Britain, in Northern Ireland there's political Protestants, even political evangelicals. Everything they say about the Roman Catholic Church is true. They're vehemently anti-Roman Catholic, but and everything they say about the Roman Catholic Church is true. The problem is, the only way to know what they're for is to know what it is they're against. <laughs> it's totally reactionary. Galatians dealt with the issue of the law reactively, refuting error. Romans deals with the issue of the law proactively. The first and foremost defense against error is always a knowledge of the truth. Is this to say we should not refute error? No, but first make sure you're teaching the truth. <laughs> You don't begin with error to define truth. You begin with truth to define error. The shepherd must feed the flock that way. If you're feeding 
them good food, their immune system is going to be able to reject infection more easily anyway. They'll be able to pick out false doctrine for themselves and know it's not scriptural. Then he goes on. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's take the second point first. Martyrs get a crown, so do pastors. I have to go to Vietnam and... I shouldn't say this on TV. Um, I go to countries where the church is persecuted. I've been in situations where every pastor has been in jail and prison, some of them tortured. They took one guy that was coming to my meetings, they arrested him for 18 days, knocked all of his teeth out. Then they let him go so everybody could see what happened to him. Then they arrested him again. I had to sneak out, get out of there. You know, I go to these, this particular country to teach these pastors in secret meetings. I go to these countries to teach them about the Word of God. <laughs> they teach me what the Word of God is about. By God's grace, I can teach them about the Word of God. They teach me what the Word of God is about. The crown. A pastor may not be martyred, but he must be willing to be. If he is somebody who is going to abandon the sheep in the face of the wolf, if you're not willing to die for the Lord's sheep the way Jesus did, you're not a good shepherd like Jesus. Now, we don't think of that in the United States, but I go to countries where that's very much the reality. Very much the reality. If you're not willing to be martyred for the sake of the Lord and die for his sheep, you should not be a pastor. Now, a time is going to come before Jesus returns, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Don't think that the freedom we have in America is going to last, or Great Britain is going to last. We've turned our back as a society on the biblical heritage that engendered our freedom. The Constitution is going out the window because this is going out the window. And it's, and it's happening fast. And it's nothing to do with political parties. They're all crooked. Let's look. When the chief shepherd appears, I don't care if it's a house church with 20 people, or if it's a mega church with 20,000 people. The pastor is the assistant pastor. The chap standing in that pulpit is the assistant pastor. In this particular congregation, Steve Mitchell is the assistant pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor. Amen. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of every fellowship of true believers. He is the chief shepherd. The chap you see in the pulpit He's the assistant pastor. If that's not the case, you've got a problem. A serious problem. Remember, the term antichrist in Greek does not only mean against Christ. It means antichristos in place of Christ. Quite a thing. The senior pastor is always Jesus of every congregation, no matter how big or how small it is. No man has a right to usurp that position. So, turn with me, please, before we go to the psalm itself, to John chapter 10. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd, as described in Psalm 23. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That word snatches there is harpezo. It's the same word for rapture. <laughs> At the end of the age, you're either going to be harpezoed by Jesus or you're going to be harpezoed by the Antichrist. Everybody gets snatched. The question is by who? At the end of the, everybody gets snatched. The question is by who? So we have three kinds of pastors. We have good pastors who are in the character of Jesus as good shepherds. They teach the truth. They would, if necessary, lay their life down for the sake of the Lord and his sheep, and they will protect the sheep from the wolves. Those are good pastors, good shepherds. Then we have wolves in sheep's clothing. Televangelist money preachers, people like con artists, the ones who are out for the filthy lucre, the sordid game, being a classic example. Most pastors, however, today, in the church in the Western world, are neither good pastors, good shepherds, nor are they wolves. Unfortunately, in most cases, certainly in denominational Christianity, the popular majority seem to be hirelings. They're hired. It's their job. The ministry is not their calling. It's their job. Their priorities are always going to be salary, accommodation allowance, superannuation, credentials and standing within the community and the denomination. <laughs> Things like that. It's their job. How do you identify a hireling? Very simple. A hireling will not protect the sheep from the wolves. They see the wolf coming and they won't do anything. They'll run away. A shepherd would say, keep away from Benny, Kenny, and Joyce. They're wolves. A hireling will go along with the agenda. A shepherd would say, put a match to the purpose-driven lie, the God chasers, and the shack. A hireling would never say that. If they will not protect the sheep from the wolves, they are a hireling. They're not a good shepherd. The ministry is their job. Their priorities are not the priorities of Christ. David had the right priorities. Mizmor le David. Verse 1 of Psalm 23. Mizmor le David. A single psalm is called a mizmor in Hebrew. Mizmor. The books of psalms, and there are three in the Hebrew canon, we fuse them together in English, are called tehilim. Tehilim. Same root as hallelujah. Tehilim, hallelujah. Book of praises, it's a hymn book. Okay? It's a hymn book. Tehilim, hallelujah, the pra praise Yahweh. Mizmole David. Yehovah roi lo exar. It does not say the Lord is my shepherd. It is a Christological statement. Cross out the Lord from your Bible. It says Yahweh is my shepherd. It points to the deity of Christ. 
God himself is our pastor. God is my pastor. Jesus is God. Who's your pastor? Jesus Christ. Who's your assistant pastor? Oh, Steve Mitchell. Jesus is God. It does not say the Lord is my shepherd. It does not say that. But I shall not want. I shall not lack. I shall not lack the things the shepherd knows I need. Who knows what's better for a French poodle? The French poodle or the veterinarian? Who knows what's better for a little baby? The little baby or a pediatrician? Who knows what's better for us? Us or Jesus? We shall not lack the things he knows we need. However, his definitions of what we need can be quite different from our own at times. There can be substantial variance. Sometimes his grace is sufficient. Now, the money preachers have completely distorted this. There was one con artist who came to England from America named Avanzini. Oh, my Lord. A sister from our ministry was there with, with, with a couple of people. And when he opened his British office, and she asked him in the question time, he was going on about how Jesus is rich and his family was rich, and she asked him, then why did Mary bring a turtle dove? Why did she bring a poor person's offering instead of a spring lamb? And, uh, <laughs> he, he couldn't handle that. They threw him out. <laughs> This guy, Avanzini, I saw him on a TV clip. I'm not telling you what he said. I'm, I'm just telling you what he said. He said, look at the widow's might. It says she gave from her want. She gave because she wanted to get something. <laughs> if that's your motive, don't give. If we gave every cent we've ever made for the Lord... We couldn't even begin to make a down payment for our salvation. If we gave every cent we ever made, we couldn't, we couldn't afford one drop of his blood. <coughs> Another con artist was the earring lady from St. Louis. <coughs> One these days she's going to shake her head and break her jaw. <laughs> My friend in Australia videoed something of her off the TV. And she was saying, in the original languages, <coughs> it says, when you give to the Lord, he gives you a receipt. So when you want something, you bring him your receipt, and he has to give it to you. Now, of course, by giving something to the Lord, she made a contribution to her ministry. <laughs> by implication. Well, I happen to know the original languages, and there are three words for receipt. In Greek, there are two words. The first is telestai, only occurs one place in John's Gospel, means paid in full. When Jesus took our sin, he paid in full. Don't believe Roman Catholicism with the purgatory and auto atonement. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. Telestai, paid in full. Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah, 
The only good thing about the Catholic school my mother forced me to go to was that they taught me Latin so I can refute their lies. <laughs> now my family's Irish and Jewish. I went to a Catholic school and the Jewish community center. If you don't know, I was both sprinkled and clipped. <laughs> I've seen two false religions in my life. One a total corruption of the Old Testament, the other a total corruption of the New. <laughs> but Jesus saved me anyway. Well, let's understand this. The first word is the telestai. The second word is arabanon. Arabanon. We translate it normally in English as pledge or earnest. The Holy Spirit is our receipt. It proves we were bought by, by the blood of Jesus. It's like if you order a Christmas present or a Hanukkah present online, and then you go to the distribution center, the warehouse, to pick it up a week before Christmas or Hanukkah, and you've got a receipt with your na name and a number, and there's a matching name and number on the parcel. There it is. That's mine. I'll have it. Thank you. When Jesus comes back, who has the Holy Spirit? I saved him. I saved him. I saved her. I saved her. I saved her. I saved him. <laughs> it's mine. I'm having it. That's our receipt. The Holy Spirit is the earnest, the pledge that we've been bought by Jesus. He's coming to pick up his parcel. That's the second word. In Greek, in Hebrew, that's in Greek. In Hebrew, the word is Kabbalah, from Lekabel, to receive. It's where you get mystical Judaism. Not the Hollywood version Madonna is into, the real thing that the Hasidim are into. It's, it's, it's basically Babylonian Gnosticism masquerading as Judaism. It's, it's basically a cult. None of those words are receipt, but Joyce Meyer tells people you get a receipt so when you want something, they has to give it to you because you give it. And people believe it. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. How can you give God what he already owns anyway? I don't, I don't quite get it. Unbelievable. Lo exar, we shall not lack the things he knows we need. Verse 2. Get your pencil with good eraser. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me next to quiet waters or beside waters still. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The word green, yarok, is not in there. He brings you to an oasis to try to survive if you're a sheep. That heat and that climate is nothing green about it. It's just foraging. The word green is not in the Hebrew. Only after the rainy seasons do you get a lot of green in certain areas of Israel. Well, anyway, let's understand this further. Let's go back to the Dead Sea. Sheep are nervous, easily excitable, and rather stupid. No wonder Jesus used them as figures of Christians. <laughs> in that climate, with that heat, all that sheep sees is the water in the Dead Sea. The high saline content would be fatal, would be noxious to that sheep and kill it. But a sheep's going to head for it. The shepherd's got to keep the sheep away from the Dead Sea. 
But then they see the wadi with the rushing water. A sheep would easily, easily get washed away and killed. Keep away from the rushing water. He takes them up to the pool, to the oasis, to the neve in Hebrew, to the waters still. Now understand the waters. Jesus told the woman at the well, I will give you living water. Maim Hayim, John 7, 38 and 39, I'll give you living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit. The water of the Holy Spirit, Maim Hayim, is water still. Okay. It comes from the rain, from the water table. Isaiah 44, 3, I will send rain upon your descendants and pour out my spirit. This is how pouring of the Holy Spirit is, is represented by rain in biblical typology. We have tapes explaining it on the Autumn Feast of Israel. You can get the teachings if you want, online or whatever. But a sheep doesn't know that. The high saline noxious waters of the Dead Sea, that's what, or the rushing wadi, they'll, they'll go for that. The shepherd has to keep them away from it. Take them to where the waters are still. We're told twice in the New Testament, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit is ikrete, self-control. When somebody's not in control of themselves, God is not in control. If you get somebody who's an alcoholic and he becomes a Christian and he backslides and he or she begins drinking hitting the jug again, are they in control of themselves? No. Why? Because God's not in control of them. You see these people saying crazy, I remember people coming back from Pensacola, Florida and Toronto, Canada, these counterfeit revivals, and this is what they were saying. I know it was God, I couldn't control it. These manifestations. By virtue of the fact they couldn't control it, proves prima facie it cannot possibly be God. You've probably heard other ones. I have to prophesy, hallelujah. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on me, I have to prophesy. You have to prophesy? The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. That proves it's not the spirit. You don't have to. shouldn't suppress the spirit, but you better make sure it is the spirit. And if you're not crazy, you'll be deluded by anything. The sheep will always drink from the Dead Sea. They'll head straight for a wadi and get washed away and crushed. They'll get on the next airplane to Pensacola, or they'll drive down to drive up to Toronto Airport Vineyard or some nonsense of that Holy Ghost bartender, that other freak with the, tat the tattooed goon, the pedophile. <laughs> they'll go after all of this stuff. They're all nuts. Shepherd will keep them away from it. Oh, the Spirit of God is moving! That's not the Spirit of God. His waters are still. It doesn't mean it's not exciting. But it does mean it's not noxious. <laughs> well, let's look. Verse 3. Nafshi Yeshoviev Yamchini, Bemagalet Sedak Lama'an Shmol. He restores my soul and guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The turn there is not paths. Cross that out. It's circles. Some suggest it is a circular path 
sheep trail going up to the top of a hill with a brook on it, could be. But also in the desert, the shepherd draws a circle at night with the staff and they set fires around the periphery and put the sheep in the middle. They sleep in shifts. One shepherd always patrols the periphery because the serpents burrow under the earth and then serpents to attack. He's got these fires illuminating the circle and he watches. And when he sees the serpent, crushes its head. People who are out of fellowship are in danger. Especially in the last days, Hebrews 10.25, forsake not the fellowshipping together one with another, especially as you see the day approaching. If we can't stand together, we're never going to stand alone. I get people from all over the world saying, I can't find the good church where I live. Well, welcome to the club. Many people can't. What do I tell them? Meet in a home. But you must be in fellowship. Now, a lamb tends to wander away from the rest of the flock. To this day, the Bedouin shepherds still do it. Biblical anthropologists still study Bedouin culture to understand ancient biblical culture. Even back to patriarchal times, there's things that have not changed much. It's amazing in Bedouin culture. That's why the anthropologists study it. They take a sheep, and at a certain joint in the leg, they break it. So the sheep can't walk. The shepherd has to carry it. Then when it walks, it walks with a limp and it hugs the knees of the shepherd, keeps close to him, won't wander off anymore. In time, though, the osteocytes will come together, the bone tissue will re-knit, and it will be as if it was never broken. The shepherd knows how to do it. The correction of the Lord. Better to break the sh little lamb's leg than the little lamb become lamb chops for the big bad wolf. Lambs tend to wander off. New believers. New believers are enthusiastic. They have their first love. Praise God, they have their first love. They think they can be Peter, James, and John for the first week. But they don't have any real knowledge of Scripture. I think they do. They don't have any experience, and they don't have a lot of wisdom. They have their first love. Older believers have the opposite problem. They've got the experience, know the Scriptures, Maybe wisdom even, but where's our first love? That's what brought down the church in Ephesus. The new believers have their first love, <laughs> but they don't have anything else. We got all this other stuff, but you just think when you were first saved, you were a lot more enthusiastic, most likely. You wouldn't think of going to the supermarket without giving the cashier a gospel tract. <laughs> you wouldn't dream of missing a Bible study because you had the sniffles <laughs> or wanted to watch the football game that you can video record anyway, they got their first love, but they don't know anything. It's in the Magalay Tzedek, the circles of righteousness. People who are out of fellowship are much more vulnerable. When you're out of fellowship, you're much more vulnerable to sin. The world can ensnare us much more easily when we're out of fellowship with other believers. Take a guy say he had a problem with gambling. He's not going to go into a, we have these in England. He's not going to go into a betting shop if he's walking down the street with another Christian or he's on his way to church 
But if he's not in fellowship, he's going to be much more likely to slip back into his old nature. Or if he was an alcoholic into a saloon or whatever, or a sex thing or whatever it happens to be with everybody. Everybody's got something. Male or female, everybody's got something. Don't worry. And the devil knows what it is. The Magalate Sedek is where he leads us. The Lord showed me I don't need any church. No, the Lord didn't show you that. If you're following him, you'll be in the Magalit Sedek. But it says in the Magalit Sedek, he restores my soul. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Cross out, restores. The term Mechadesh, to renew, is not there. I'll tell you what it says once again. What it says is, Magalit Sedek Lama'an Shmo. Nafshi Yeshoviev. He causes my soul to repent. In Hebrew, repentance means to turn. Teshuvah. In Greek, the same, metanoia. One of the things that spurred Luther in the Reformation, he learned from a French humanist scholar, Le Fivure, that the Greek word metanoia didn't mean the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance. It meant to repent. <laughs> okay. So, how does the Lord restore us emotionally? How does it restore our soul? You're on your way to church, your unsaved husband picks a fight with you, you get in a traffic jam, you're this, you're that, the kid, your kids are driving you nuts, and oh, this. Think your son is smoking pot, and your daughter's sleeping around, and your family fight, and you walk through that door, and everybody's singing Amazing Grace. <laughs> and the Spirit of God is moving. And you feel like you just crawled out of a gutter. That's because in a matter of speaking, you did. <laughs> it's in the place of fellowship. He causes our souls to repent. It's in the place of fellowship. The Spirit of God moves. He causes us to repent. Repentance, putting things right, is the key to a restoration of emotional and psychological normalcy. God always begins with the spirit. What happens psychologically and emotionally is a result of what happens spiritually. Put things right. That's the first key. And it happens in the place of fellowship. Let's continue. The Ma'an Shmo, he does this for his namesake. Can you imagine? God does these good things for us as if he were doing it for himself. He does these good things for us as if he were doing it for himself. Because he is. We're the body of Christ. <laughs> we are his body on earth. We are the body of Christ. He does good for us as if he were doing it for himself. That's quite a thing in itself, isn't it? Well, let's continue. The Valley of Death. We normally think of it as this tunnel you go through when you cash in your chips and give up the ghost. It may be. Jesus will be there, don't worry. Remember, biological death is no mystery. We mystified it. Scriptures speak directly. 
What are you going to see when it happens? You're going to see what Stephen saw in Acts chapter 7 and 8. You're going to see Jesus and you're going to see your loved ones. There's no mystery to it. We made it a mystery. The scripture tells us what's going to happen. It's a mystery for the world. The unsaved people don't know, but it's not supposed to be a mystery for us. But that's not, in its context, what the valley of death is. It's the sojourning in this life. The gazelles that I'm getting can cause the rocks to fall and do. And they're predatory animals. A shadow can't hurt you. Salmavit, the shadow of death. A shadow can't hurt you, but it tells you there's something nearby that can. As long as you stay with the shepherd, don't be afraid of the shadow. The enemy cannot touch the new creation. You understand? The enemy cannot touch the new creation. He can only get to us through the old one. You stay with the shepherd. And our sojournings in this life, oh, the enemy lurks. You'll see the shadow. But a shadow has no substance. Now, if you wander away from the shepherd through the valley of death, then you got a big problem. Remember, we're on our way to the oasis. <laughs> Stick with the shepherd. He knows the way. He'll get you there. And these shepherds wore a sheep's fleece as their clothing. They looked like the sheep. They didn't come out and try to deck themselves out and set themselves above the people. They identified with the people. They put themselves in the same socioeconomic class with the people they were trying to shepherd with the sheep. Be careful of those who set themselves above. He's simply somebody who knows how to get you through it. Of course, this is the Lord, and he really knows how to get us through it. We continue. I'll fear no evil, thou art with me, thy rod and staff, they comfort me. Ah. Most scholars think it's the same instrument applied two different ways. Thy rod and thy staff. Notice it puts the rod first. The correction of the Lord in our lives is as much emblematic of his love for us as is the staff we lean on. We all love to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. We can lean on Jesus. That's true, but that's the staff. When he clunks us over the head for being stupid and doing stuff we know we shouldn't, that's also his love. You dumb sheep, I told you not to go to Toronto. I told you not to give any money to Benny Hinn. <laughs> over there. That's as much an emblem. It's as much symptomatic, as much indication of his love. The rod proves his love as much as the staff. The correction of the Lord in our lives is demonstrative of his love just as much as our capacity to lean on him when things are tough. I rod and my staff comfort me. We should, de we should derive comfort from both. The very fact that he's clonking us over the head proves we belong to him. He only corrects his children. The fact that he clonks us over the head proves we belong to him. 
Everybody's got something. See those things over there? Those, they look like crutches. That's a cross. That's a cross Jesus gave. He can heal me in one-tenth of a second if he wanted to. For some reason, he's given me those things. I don't fully understand what the reason is, but I partially understand it. And someday I will fully understand it, but I know it's from him. Now, you, oh, the devil and bad health and claim the healing. I know all of that stuff. The Lord's healed me from... <laughs> I, I was a strung-out cocaine addict. And I, I was delivered from hard drugs like that. No withdrawal, nothing. I was a freak. Your friend's dead from drugs. And I was just like, I know the power of God to deliver and save and heal. <laughs> I've seen the Lord heal people of all kinds of things. But I also realized that Paul prayed three times, take this buffet of Satan, and he, God didn't. He has a purpose. He's got a purpose in it. That's his rod. There's things in my life he's dealing with. It's just the way, that's just me. You got something else. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The fact that I didn't snuff it last September, he kept me here for a reason. I was ready to check out. <laughs> it hurt like a henna. <laughs> My kids are grown. What do I care? I don't need this joint. <laughs> I get fed up with this place. When I read the newspaper, I just want them to come. It's getting too crooked. The world is getting too evil even for guys like me, and I'm crooked. <laughs> I just want Jesus to come sometimes. I get so frustrated because I don't see any other way to stop the wickedness. Teaching little kids homosexuality is normal in school and that's the law. What's going to stop this? Then it shifts. Verse 5, it becomes Paschal. Ta'aroch lefanav shulchan neged sorarai. We say, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Cross that out. He sets a table for me, naked sorarai, against the one who causes me trouble. There's a Yiddish word called sorris, trouble, trouble of life. Sorarai. The devil causes us trouble. It says in Peter, as if some strange thing were happening to you. <laughs> Don't be surprised when this happens. Naked sorarai. Okay. Right now, the table is being set for the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to put Brother Jacob over here, and I'm going to put Sister Wilcox over there, and Pastor Steve and Sophia over here, and I'm going to put John Howell and his wife over there. And, you know. and the devil sees this, and he's not invited. <laughs> Guess where you're going? <laughs> this frustrates him. We can't taunt the devil, but God's taunting him. The Lord is preparing the marriage supper of the Lamb. My cup overfloweth. This is the cup of blessing in the Paschal Seder. You'd have to understand the symbolism of the Jewish Passover to understand the full richness of what this is saying. A cup of blessing is being poured out as we speak. But the cup of his wrath and revelation is also being poured out. Which cup are you going to drink from? This is 
against the one who causes us trouble. Satan is already being taunted because he knows what's happening. I saw a t-shirt once some Christians made in California. The next time the devil reminds you of your past, of your of past reminds him of his future. And boy, that t-shirt was, was a good t-shirt. <laughs> Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. The term anointed means we are in Christ. He is the anointed one, Mishcha, like we get the word Mashiach, Messiah. One last verse. Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Hebrew is a little different. Ech tov vehesed yordifuni. Kol yemei hayai veshavti bebet yechowah leorak yamim. It's exclamatory. How good! Tov vehesed. Ech tov vehesed. How good is the grace? How good is the unmerited favor that chases after me? It's the term of a hunter pursuing its prey. The Lord is actually chasing after us to cast his grace upon us. The best book I ever read after the Word of God is The Pilgrim's Progress. And I remember the time with the oil can every time I was going to put more oil. He chases after us. He's looking for an excuse to do good to us. Just like a grandchild. When's his birthday? When's her birthday? You're looking for an excuse to do something good for them. You, you tell you, I, I got a grandson in England. I, I tell my daughter, why don't you guys go away for a few days? We'll, we'll take care of the kid, you know. You're looking for an excuse to do good to them. God is looking for a reason to do good to us. In Hebrew, eternity is orame olamim. Translated into Greek, enyao tau enyones. That means from age to ages. That's eternity. Okay. Then there's yame hayecha, your life in this world. But here it's something else. Ech tovehesed yordifuni kol yamei hayai. It's both in this world and in the world to come. It's an inclusive term. It's not rak behayim, right? Not in the, just in this life. It's both in this life and in the world to come. Remember, biological death and biological birth for the believer are perfunctorial. Real birth is second birth. Real death for the unsaved is second death. To escape the second death, you have to have the second birth. Whatever happens to us biologically is only of temporal consequence. It has no ultimate meaning. We are already living our eternal life. Jesus abolished death, katargeo in Greek. It has no power over us because it had no power over him. However, although we have our eternal life, we have to understand. Ech tovehesed yordifuni kol yamei hayai. Veshavti bebet yechawala orek yamim. 
It's not just in this life. It'll be in the millennial reign of Christ and in eternity. For the believer, the best is always yet to come. It doesn't matter how tough life gets in this world. The best is yet to come. And it doesn't matter how good life gets in this world. The best is yet to come. Not only will the bad things no longer matter when Jesus comes, again, John uh, chapter 16, but the good things will not matter either. The best is always yet to come. For the unsaved, the worst is always yet to come. Unless you are in Christ, the older you get, the less you have to live for. In Christ, the older you get, the more you have to live for. For the unsaved, it ends at the grave. There their troubles begin. For us, it begins at the grave. There our troubles end. That's assuming we're not here for the rapture. I'm going to ask Steve just to let me tell one little anecdote very briefly. We have a mission in Africa for AIDS kids, and we have another one we're associated with in Uganda. If you know any missionaries who want to go to Uganda and take care of AIDS kids, let us know. We need some missionaries for Uganda. But anyway, when I go to South Africa, when I go to South Africa, I get to the airport, and I've got to do a lot of stuff. Well, I've got to change money. Where's the, where's the Bureau de Change? Got to do the financial thing. Then I've got to do some work before I fly out. Where, where's the business center? Got to go to do some work. Then I've got to buy some gifts for the kids. Where's the duty free? Right. Oh, there, the, the, the malaria. I've got to go to the airport clinic or the pharmacy and get some malaria. You've got to do the health thing, the business thing, the financial thing. But I love going into the departure lounge. In the departure lounge, there's a selection of literature about South Africa. shows you about where you're going. Posters of elephant and rhinos up in the Kruger National Park and Zulu warriors in the native headdress and things like this in Cape Town, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. <laughs> then there's a smorgasbord of food and wines from South Africa. A taste of where you're going. This is the departure lounge. This is the literature that tells us about where we're going. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer of the marriage supper of the Lamb, as well as a memorial of what he did. It's a foretaste of the cuisine waiting us as he sets this table. We get a dim view of where we're going, but we also are with other people going to the same place. Out there, you got to do the work thing, the business thing, the financial thing, the commercial thing. You know, you got to do all the health thing. You got to do all that. But it's great to have that done and come in here. The departure lounge. This is the departure lounge. One or two things are going to happen. Will Jacob Prash and Steve Mitchell please report to gate B47 for your departure? Or will all passengers depart to gate B47 for your departure? I don't know if we're flying out of here individually or if we're getting on the same plane with the rapture, but we're getting out of here. And we're coming back with Jesus for the millennium. And then things get really good. <laughs> for the believer, the best is always yet to come. For the non-believer, the worst is always yet to come. The older you get, the less you have to live.
מזמור לדוד, יחווה רועי, לא אקסר. ונאות דשא ירביצני על מי מנוחות ינחלני, נפשי ישובי יביאנכני. מגלה צדק למען שמו. גם כי אלק בגיא צלמוות לא ערערה, כי אתה עמדי, שבטך ומשנתך המה ינחמוני, תערוך לפניו שולחן נגד צורריי. ושנת בשמן ראשי, כוסי רוויה. איך טוב והסד ירדיפוני כל ימי חיי, ושבתי בבית יחווה לאורך ימים. Because of Jesus, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.